Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. We're talking to leaders across the cell and gene therapy industry and telling you more about Ori's mission to manufacture brighter futures. I'm Jason Foster, the CEO of Ori Biotech, and I'll be the host for today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. We are lucky to have uh, Jim Faulkner with us today. Jim is a very experienced cell and gene therapy executive who's done worn lots of hats in the industry. Uh, which I'll ask him to uh, to tell us more about during the course of the next hour or so. Uh, but just wanted to say thank you and welcome to Jim. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be here. If you don't mind diving right in with a little bit of your background, I know um, you've recently joined uh, Ori's Scientific Advisory Board, so thank you so much for becoming part of the the broader Ori team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wanted to look back uh, a little bit your at your history, both scientific and in the industry, uh, in cell and gene. So if you could just give us kind of a view of how you got to where you are today, that would be a great starting point. Yeah, it's been a it's been a kind of a winding road, but a, a fun adventure. I did my PhD in molecular biology in yeast when mm-hmm. yeast was a thing. I guess my career proper started when I joined British Biotech in Oxford. It mm-hmm. was my first industry job after doing a couple of postdocs. That taught me so much, actually, very early in my career, because it taught me about biotech. It taught me about what was good and what was challenging. You know, British Biotech, when I was there, was was a, a rise and a fall. You know, it rose very quickly. It was very exciting. Everybody thought it was going to be the next, you know, major pharmaceutical company. And, of course, that isn't mm-hmm. how it went. And yes. the roof kind of metaphorically fell in. And, <laughs> and so that was a very great start to my career in biotech. I moved on to Big Pharma. I joined what was then Glaxo Welcome, became GlaxoSmithKline, and I spent a long time there. And I got a really good foundation in biopharmaceutical development, mostly proteins, mm. uh, but also DNA vaccines, um, uh, some uh, viral vaccines. I ended my time there in rare diseases. I was head of uh, manufacturing and supply for the rare disease unit. But I, I did realize that GSK was not the right place for me to pursue cell and gene therapy, frankly, and that's no disrespect to them as a company, but they're, they're, you know, it's a big pharma and you really need to have that specialized and focused environment, I think, mm-hmm. to, to really effectively de- deliver cell and gene therapy. And I was approached by Syncona, the investment house, to join a startup which became known as Autolus, uh, spun out of University College London. And um, I really didn't think too hard about it. In retrospect, it was quite a risky move, but I I didn't see it like that. It's what I wanted to do. I was excited by it. And I was one of the first senior employees at Autolus, so very much a blank sheet of paper. And I remember that, you know, first few weeks of just, wow, you know, I was used to having this kind of regime of meetings and, and committees and stuff at GSK. And suddenly it was like, wow, we've actually got to do real stuff here. Um, what year was, is this about? <laughs> this was about 2015 and, okay. and, and it was exhilarating really to, to have that freedom to build a team, build a process, work with people uh, through Autolus. And, and, you know, in this podcast, we'll talk more about how, what those experiences learned, uh, taught me. And, and it was a lot. And, you know, and, you know, we took that company from, from the day that I joined. It was, it was three years before we IPO'd, which was very, very quick. We were already over 200 people at that point, and it was a real ride um, and very exciting. I guess after four or five years, it, it stopped being the company that I joined. You know, it just had, and I, I wasn't enjoying it as much. And I really wanted to go back to, to the startup. That's where I really enjoyed what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was approached by a guy called Mike Ayers, who just left being head of R&D at Biogen and joined a, a venture firm called Apple Tree Partners to come and uh, join him on a startup a gene therapy company in, in Boston, Massachusetts. The role evolved from a single company to actually becoming part of Apple Tree Partners and joining there as a, as a venture partner and helping them not just with that company, Acidian Therapeutics, to which I, I still help them with, but also becoming a, a part of their of their uh, venture board uh, mm-hmm. venture firm and uh, helping them across both their existing portfolio and future portfolio and I did that until two months ago unfortunately Apple tree withdrew from the UK closed their office and and uh, I'm now an independent consultant and I'm very happy to to help 
startups and venture firms um, in the sound gene therapy field. So that's been my sort of potted history of me. Excellent. No, tons of things to delve into a bit further there, but going from how many years, years were you at GSK? I was 15 years at GSK okay. in a variety of roles, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 15 years at GSK, then Autolus is a startup, then another set of startups. It's a, yeah. an interesting transition. Um, mm -hmm. Oftentimes, if you go ten greater than 10 years in big pharma, you're sort of institutionalized. And you <laughs> yes, yeah. No exactly. longer go anywhere else. So it's, it a, it's interesting that, that you made the leap. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Well, let's cover uh, more of that in a minute for sure. Um, and, you know, you've obviously been involved intimately in Cell and Gene for a very long time now uh, and seen it through its development. It's, you know, as people joke, it's a 30-year overnight success that's taken 30 years uh, to, to get there. There's a lot of talk in the industry, as you know, about some of the challenges that the first cell therapies and gene therapies have faced in really achieving patient access. You know, we mm -hmm. have incredibly efficacious medicines, as you mentioned, Stromvelis, which has a great um, ability to cure a very um, significant rare disease. Uh, but it's had a, a bit of, it's had a few owners, haven't it? It's gone from, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it ended up with Orchard, didn't it? And then sort of has yeah, gone and, beyond and that as well now. Exactly. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a story in itself um, of, which rather sums up some of those challenges. Yeah, mm. GSK, yeah, decided that it wasn't it wasn't viable for them they, they mm. sold it on to orchard orchard i'm not sure about this fact but uh, i'm not sure whether they're still marketing stream Velis. i think they may have moved that on yeah i'm not sure they yeah. are anymore yeah. but i think that kind of question around commercial viability not only faces you know what are tended tending to be very expensive gene therapies but also you know, this first generation of cell therapies that exist mostly targeted towards hematological tumors, as you know, um, you know, we've seen incredible data that has been unparalleled. You know, you look at the Carvicti data in multiple myeloma, 90 plus percent complete response rates, you know, just numbers that are just unheard of. And, you know, I'm curious in your view, you know, looking today in, in uh, late 2023, what is, um, what is your perspective on, you know, kind of where the industry is focused to try and solve some of these challenges? What, what are the most significant challenges that remain from your perspective, really, as it relates to patient access? Because I think ultimately that's the only measuring stick that really matters is how many patients get successfully treated. Mm -hmm. we, we measure a lot of other things. We measure, you know, IND submissions and first patient dosed in a clinical trial and $100 million Series A's are, are things we tend to celebrate. But at the end of the day, those of us in the industry are all concerned with how do we make sure that the patients have the benefit? And up until now, we've struggled tremendously to get these products to patients at scale. You know, the numbers that we have put together suggest that we've treated less than 3% of the available patient population with the first generation CAR-T products. So it, in yeah. total, it's like 25,000 patients over seven years. Uh, but if you look, you know, within the year 2022, we treated a little less than 7,000 patients uh, across a set of indications that have, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 patients that could have been, could have been treated. So I wonder, it's a long way of asking the question to say, what are the big challenges that are real still facing the industry uh, as you sit from your seat uh, as a former, you know, uh, formerly down in the trenches and then an investor? I'm, I'm curious what that perspective has brought to you. Yeah, there's kind of two dimensions here. I mean, there's what what I think probably the focus of the question is, which is around commercialization and around mm. you know the what things that that haven't really changed from the from the beginning around both price and um, uh, and around scalability. Those are two two challenges that still remain. But also, I think that um, there's another dimension, which is the ability to get those products to market. You know, there's that clinical journey, and I think that you know, in my career, I've I've been mostly involved in that. I haven't I haven't ever sold a a, a cell and gene therapy program, product. Mm -hmm. It's it's been around that that development, and what are the barriers to to development of these products? And I think that certainly the the, the cost to get to phase one, and that's around the CMC costs primarily. Mm -hmm. Some non-clinical stuff's expensive because of primate work that's that's required but it's primarily the big ticket is, is the cmc costs so so just you know a lot of cell and gene therapies don't get off the ground at all because mm. of the, they don't get the funding to get to that point so they don't even, we don't even get to the discussion around 
you know commercial price yeah um so there's 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 the the challenge of of actually getting to clinic and then i guess the 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 price and economics are a bit of a vicious circle because Selangene is still stuck a little bit in the rare disease niche. You know, mm-hmm. small numbers demand high prices. Otherwise, there is no return on investment. And so, therefore, you know, we live in a, unfortunately, in a, in a capitalist world that, that, that demands a return on investment. Otherwise, things yes, don't get yes. off the ground. And um, so I think whilst Selangene remains, you know, within this niche, it's going to be hard for it to to break that cycle and i think that it will eventually i think the technical challenges are solvable you know i think that the, the companies like Aurea are are moving that dial pretty quickly when you compare it to other uh, innovations in the past in terms of of our ability to scale i think you know if if, if someone said there's 100,000 patients to be treated. It could be done. It could be done with the with the will and with the investment, with the technologies that we have today, let alone what are being developed tomorrow. Yeah. No, it is a multifaceted challenge for sure. You mentioned, you know, uh, pharma development is a, is a for-profit endeavor. And it mm. actually triggered a thought. I think if I remember correctly, what happened to Stromvelis is Orchard partnered with a nonprofit to make it available. I think, if I remember correctly, I have to go back yeah, and look. But well, that certainly isn't economic. You know, there are there are a very small number of patients, and it's extremely difficult to produce. So exactly, you know, so these kind of public-private partnerships may be yeah. what we see moving forward for some of these more niche uh, mm-hmm. indications. Uh, but more broadly, I mean, obviously, we're treating things like multiple myeloma, which has you know forty thousand refractory patients a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ALL, DLBCL, some of these are, you know, 10, 15, 20,000. And then, of course, we're studying CAR T and other thing, other um, interventions in almost every imaginable uh, cancer and even, you know, chronic disease like cardiovascular disease. So these are massive challenges that, that we have to overcome. Yeah, and 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 it's it's getting there. I think you know we're seeing we're seeing autoimmune diseases. You know, we're starting to see. CAR T type approaches nibbling at that, and you know, I I think that, uh, that that we'll see other diseases like fibrosis and so on uh, also being uh, addressed in that with with cell and gene. So I, I think the future is going to be in non rare disease for sure. Um, and then you think about what what are we going to have to do in order to to get there and technically, and I think some of the stuff around you know, parallel processing of, of multiple samples. You know, when I started at Autolus, we couldn't do that. Uh, we had to do one patient in a, in a clean room, you know, and uh, we're well beyond that. You know, close processing has, has really enabled that. The automation is getting better incrementally all the time. The testing regimens are getting smarter. Um, but I think what we, what we really will eventually see is, you know, I look back at other innovative technologies, whether it be videotape in the 80s or computers in the 90s. There was a plethora of different approaches that began, right? Um, for the, you know, the students of Betamax and VHS, so, you know, I'm probably showing my age here. Now, eventually, the industry has to coalesce around a small number of platforms. We've seen it in maps, you know. There is a mad platform process. Nobody doesn't do protein A as a first step. You know, you'd be crazy to try and reinvent that. And yeah. and we're seeing seeing that in AAV in gene therapy. You know, these affinity regions and stuff are, are are there's a there's a platform process that you could pretty broadly point to that all the CDMOs are coalescing around. And I think that we're going to see that again. They're going to there are you know quite a few different platforms, but I think there's going to be an attrition in that. And I think you're going to see a coalescence and standardization around certain things. Yeah, I think you're the second recent guest to, to mention standards to me. And you know, there mm-hmm. really aren't any, unfortunately, yet in the cell and gene therapy industry. And we need them. You know, we, everyone reinventing the wheel every time and starting out from scratch is, is not is not serving us well. You know, it's wasting a lot of resources. That drives the cost, you see. Whereas if you're if you were a developer and you could rock up at a CDMO and said, this is how you do it, right? 
and there isn't there isn't a huge amount of choice. This is the platform. Everybody can fit into that, and then regulators can compare apples with apples and and so on. And I just think it will it will drive efficiencies in the industry. Agreed, agreed. I mean, you mentioned uh, Autolus, uh, a company you joined very early on, and we're at for several mm-hmm. years. Uh, my understanding is they're expecting an approval, hopefully in 2024, for their first product. They've submitted their their BLA, and um, yeah, fingers crossed that it that uh, that it, it works out. I certainly hope so for the team. Then, indeed, indeed, it's been a bit of a long road for them, but I'm excited to have them hit the market with. Uh, I believe it's a CD19 Car T product targeted towards ALL. Is that right? Do I, That's do I correct. That? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, having been on the ground and, and been the one facing these challenges firsthand, mm-hmm. um, I'm curious about that historical reference point, you know, what Autos went through back at that point. You know, it has taken, I don't know, when did you say you joined? 2015. So now we're looking at eight or nine years here. That's a good point. I mean, it, it it's 10 years, really, from the start of the company to the point that they hopefully will gain an approval. Now, mm-hmm. I think they've done pretty well. But I also think that, um, you know, as an investor, I see a lot of, of early stage companies saying, Oh, we'll do it in three. We'll do it in five. And I think, you know, truthfully, when we were at Autolus, when we were doing that pitch back in 2015 and, and so on. Yeah. I think we thought we would you maybe said the same that. thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, so a bit of, a bit of, um, brutal realism about, you know the amount of hard yards that need to be done in order to to get a therapy all uh, all the way. You know it's quite a good case history. Mm. Yeah, and can you describe somewhat? You know, of course, no no proprietary details are being asked for, but just generally, like what is what are really the key when you're on the ground at a, you know, as the CTO or CMO of a you know cell therapy company? What are the kinds of things that you're thinking about? Because I recently wrote an article with. Uh, Sanjay Srivastava from Accenture, you, you might know Sanjay, um, really about the, 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 the new economics of advanced therapies where, you know, you grew up in biologics and, you know, started there, you know, we've, we've built a model around small molecules and biologics that's worked for 30 or 40 years. It's, you know, you race to the clinic, you get clinical data, you prove that you have something, you know, a target, a, a molecule that works. And then oftentimes a, a partnership or a buyout from, Big Pharma is, you know, the next step at phase two once you get sort of data that's that looks reasonable. And that model has worked quite well. You know, it's really about the scientific data and the clinical data. And if you can get that, that's the major piece that, that people are looking for in those modalities. And we've, we've used that same blueprint for advanced therapies and have un- unfortunately learned the hard way that that's, that's not all that... Yeah, that uh, yeah. that we need. We need to have a. I mean, you mentioned viability. Like, we need to have a, a a path, a credible path to commercial viability and launch, and you know, market access and reimbursement to make this go. Because we can't assume that that's going to happen like we did back for small molecules or, or biologics. Um, so, you know, when you're in that in that role, are you feeling torn? You know, as a senior leader in a small biotech company, by you know, I know I'd have to deliver the scientific and clinical data, but to fix my manufacturing process, I've got to slow down a bit and kind of think through, you know, how, how does that, how does that work? And how do those conversations with investors work at the, around the board yeah. table? Oh, I mean, Jason, you, you, you kind of hinted it there. I mean, the tensions, if you like, uh, in the different directions and, and the different stakeholders you have to manage are, yeah, stressful. Mm. Um, because, you're quite right. There are multiple different um, stakeholders who want slightly different things, um, but everybody wants it fast and everybody wants it now. Um, and it's it's yeah, you have to 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 manage that. And I, I think that when I when I look back at, at at my time, the challenge yeah is that you're not doing your process development and and so on in a vacuum. You are under a great deal of pressure to deliver what is needed to keep the company moving forward. And that mm. is clinical data. And once you've begun to get on that train of, of um, uh, enrolling patients and generating data, and don't forget, these are open label studies. So the, the data is rolling in in real time. Um, it's not a case of, you know, two years of blind study and then turn the cards over at the end and see what happens. You're seeing it emerge. And so 
you're seeing some patients respond. You're seeing some patients not respond so well. You're seeing all the different analytics arriving at different points. <laughs> some takes longer than others. And so there's this tremendous constant iteration of, right, do we need to move this? Do we need to tweak that? Can we change the process? Can we not change the process? Should we just lock it now because we're on a roll and we have to? We don't want to start putting regulatory risk into the process. So there are all sorts of real-time conversations pulling you in different directions. And as the CTO, CMO, you have to try and help navigate that. And at the same time, yeah, have investors who are wanting to just pour petrol on the fire, if you like, and just say, can we, this is looking great. Can we do more? Can we do more? And the fact is that throughput of patient is quite limited in the early days in particular, both for scalability, but also for regulatory reasons. The regulators don't, they're not going to want you to jump, crank off, you know, 20 patients in parallel. You have to do them in serial and see outcomes and so on. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a real uh, bottleneck, if you like, at that stage, and, and a lot of that those pressures fall on on the CMC team. And it is it's one of those things. And in, in the article that I was mentioning, you know, we really call on investors to mm-hmm. sort of take a step back and look because new investors are going to ask this question, right? Yeah. They're they're going to ask, how are you going to get this product to market? You know, mm-hmm. what indications are you going after? What line coverage do you expect? What's the size of that indication? You know, how do you expect yeah. to manufacture for that many patients? They're asking all of these questions. But your existing investor base needs to also be open to, mm-hmm. you know, if someone like yourself, who's the CTO or CMO, comes in and says, I need an extra six months to shore up these pieces of the process yeah. to make sure that it's scalable and it's not going to fall apart when we try and go from 10 patients a year to 100 mm-hmm. to 1,000. Uh, and so getting investors on board to understand that, you know, this new paradigm applies is important. Otherwise, you're, you know, you as a as a you know chief uh, or a, an executive in a biotech company is being pulled in two totally different directions, and what we see, what we tend to see unfortunately is that the scientific and clinical model led model wins. You know, it's like everyone mm-hmm. knows that that's sort of ha- what we have to do. This other thing seems like it's a nice to have, but mm-hmm. it's not until we get to phase three and we try and launch a product and we can only produce four a year and their you know cost of goods are way too high. That we say, oh shoot, you know, we we might have made a mistake four or five years ago by not taking the time mm-hmm. to do that. So in your in your investor, you know, wearing your investor hat, do you see those sorts of conversations happening amongst investors? Do you see investors getting a greater level of sensitivity to this? And you know, are they then trying to incentivize or counsel their portfolio companies to think differently about manufacturing earlier in R and D? I think definitely the intelligent investors definitely are much mm. more savvy about this. And I and I think back, if I go back again to, to Autolus, uh, when we were doing our Series B, um, you know, I, I remember there was the pitch, you know, obviously, like any small biotech, you, you practice this pitch and CEO, the founder, the CSO, and everyone was doing their thing. As the sort of manufacturing lead, I didn't have much to say. I, you know, slide... <laughs> 45, you know, (laughs) manufacturing, right? One slide, six bullets. (laughs) And really, I was supposed to kind of sit at the back and and look confident. You know, Mm -hmm. that was my, it wasn't really a lot, great deal of discussion at that stage. And yet, very quickly, uh, the industry began to learn that CMC was a big deal for Solange. And and so by the time we got to our IPO, uh, I remember, you know, the, the first kind of, we were going to, you know, have you the pitch that you go around all your investors with, and I was sort of sitting in the room as as the CEO was, was began to describe what we were going to do, and you know, getting a cup of coffee, thinking, oh, I don't, I'm not going to be around, <laughs> I don't, know, don't have to think too much until slide 35 or 40, mm-hmm. and then, and it's like bang up top, you know, CMC, Jim, this is where you come in. It's like what? We're only on slide three, we're only on slide yeah. four, and it was like yeah. And I remember that was like realization how things had changed, not mm-hmm. just for us, but for the industry, that this was very much uh, top of the agenda. Um, and my role at Apple Tree was, is a direct sort of straight line from that, because um, I remember when Seth Harrison, who's the, the, the managing partner there, talked to me about joining Apple Tree. 
uh, and becoming a venture partner, I was very honest with him. I said, Seth, I you know don't really know a huge amount about the mechanics of setting up companies. You know, if you <laughs> ask me to describe the difference between you know sort of preference shares and ordinary shares, I'd, I'd you know I'd stumble around a bit. Yeah. Um, and I remember what he said to me. I'll paraphrase it a bit, um, but he basically said, "Jim, we have a lot of smart lawyers, and we have some really diligent associates. They do all that stuff. What we need is is people who understand risk, who uh, understand how to evaluate both the science, but most of all the prag- pragmatism of turning that science into therapeutics and reality." Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what that's what we're looking for. And I said, oh, yep. yeah, I can, I can do that bit. And um, very much that was my role at Apple Tree uh, was to try and make sure that there's a lot of cool science out there, Jason, in, in all sorts of fields, uh, mm. but notably in cell and gene. Yes. But what what investors really need to know is how do you actually make this happen? You know what, and and that's something that I think over my career I've I've, I've you know learned the hard way that, that how do you actually turn these dreams into reality? How do you enable that scientific vision into a therapeutic product? Yeah, absolutely, and one that has that's accessible uh, to patients for sure. Ultimately, the end game. So, what would you if you if you had your time machine and you went back to to see young Jim back in twenty fifteen or sixteen? I had the question framed as, you know, what do you feel that developers should be doing now? So earlier in the development cycle to help set themselves up for commercial success. So all those things that you're focused on getting the clinical endpoints, getting into the clinical trial, safety, efficacy, what other things should they be focused on to ensure that ultimately the outcome is achieved where an ROI can be delivered, patients can be treated, you know, the product can be accessed? Somebody once said something to me that really stuck in my mind, and that was, the only thing worse than failure is unaffordable success. Mm. And I think that is so true that, yeah, you can try and fail if you, you know, testing a scientific hypothesis, sometimes you don't get it right. And that that's, that's the business, you know, and that's fine. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's part of what we do, but actually to go into an endeavor Create something that uh, offers someone hope uh, in a in a situation that is threatening the, their lives or someone that they love, and then to say to them, "But you know what? You can't have it because you can't afford it because mm-hmm. we didn't think about that at the beginning." Mm-hmm. That's unforgivable, really, and it's uh, it's it's a pretty poor investment as well, actually, yes. just from that perspective too. So, I think that. Getting that thought process in up top and ensuring that what you're doing has uh, an outcome that is going to meet the needs of of patients and investors is is absolutely critical. And you may as well have that discussion up front rather than at the end. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, to your point, the worst outcome for all parties involved is investing the full, whatever, hundreds of millions, billion dollars in 10 years mm-hmm. to get a product that's very clinically effective, but that no one can access. No. And that, that, that is the, that is the worst case of all. You'd almost rather it yeah. fail in the clinic. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've seen examples of very clinically effective products, Bluebirds, uh, suite of products, Skysona and Zingtegla most recently. Uh, but seven, seven out of something like 28 products that have been launched in Europe in the gene therapy space have been withdrawn for commercial reasons. Yeah. You know, yeah. not for clinical or safety reasons, but because, you know, they really just, the economics didn't work. That's right. It's not. And so we need to, you know, <laughs> none of us want to continue to see those outcomes. I mean, all of us realize that that is a terrible outcome for patients is a terrible outcome for investors and for companies. And so that's, you know, part of the reason why I think people who've lived it like yourself can be so valuable to those, early biotech management teams um, to yeah. really think this issue through. And, you mm-hmm. know, one of our partner, partners is Achilles Therapeutics here in the UK. You know, Ed Samuel has been there for the whole time yeah. I've known that company, five or six years, mm-hmm. um, you know, ahead of manufacturing. And there was like, you know, five or six people <laughs> knocking around the place, but he was there very early. You know, they were thinking about how are we going to make these? This is not going to be an easy product to make. We need to make sure that we're thinking about this at the very beginning and thinking about, you know, I was joking in a conversation earlier today about, you know, I, I grew up in small molecules and, you know, if you have a TPP, a target per, per product profile, you would never really see a cost of goods target in there. 
because I'm making small molecules, I'm stamping out tablets. It doesn't really, you know, going to cost, you know, 0.3 of a, of a P or 0.2 of a P. It doesn't really matter. But that's not the world we're in anymore. We need to have a pro product profile that includes, you know, accessibility, affordability. Here's our target cost of goods. Here's our target throughput per year. Here's how we're going to make these things. And, and that's really where we hope that a, a platform like Ori's will make a difference because we will be flexible enough to use in the lab, you know, in the UCLs and the academic centers out there developing the next wave of products, you can do it on the system and you can decide, okay, I've got the flexibility. I need to play around and, and figure out what's going to work. And if I can get it to work, then I know I've got a, a seamless path to, to scalability. It'll take me into the clinic and it'll take me to commercial scale rather than having to develop it on, you know, in a flask and a bag and a micro pipette and then hope. Hope we can fix it down the line, which seems to be unfortunately where still a lot of companies' heads are at. Yeah, yeah. No, I I had was proud to say that, that you know the 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 basic platform and process that we treated our first patient with at Autolus is the one that's gone into the license submission. So you know it, it's not changed fundamentally from that. Yeah, yeah. That's and, and I think it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the market dynamics play out with another entrant into the AOL space and, and how all that, how all that happens. So when in your time at Apple tree and, and that was, you said almost three years uh, you were there. Yeah. Yeah. At least. Yeah. 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 And that was mostly focused on therapeutics company investments. Is that where you were? Exclusively. Yeah. Exclusively. And so, you know, the work of some, some of that work that you had done over the past several years, are those companies, how are those companies finding it? Are you still involved? I know you're city and you said you, you might, you're still involved yeah, I with. I still support a city and that's the only Apple tree company that I'm, I'm formally continuing to support. Yeah. I think uh, it's a tough time for biotech out there. Very, generally. Yeah. Uh, and so everybody is uh, having to uh, think about uh, everything. <laughs> you know? Re rethink um, everything. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You thought you knew. And it's very brutal. You know, it's some companies, you know, you, you, you have to, you know, read VSB biotech or, whatever every day and and um you know there are there are there's you know there's a company going down pretty much every day um that's that's the brutal reality of it um so yeah uh, i i think um apple tree i think is a is a pretty intelligent science science-led investor um and um it's investing very early stage um, in, in, in really pioneering science, some of those things are not going to succeed and they accept that. And, um, and that's, you test a hypothesis and you have to have the, the guts to, to, to know when it, when that's not working too. Um, so, you know, that's just part of the industry that we're in. Yeah. I'm, uh, as I say, working with the city and therapeutics at the moment, we are gene therapy company and, you know, just going through there. Yeah, that initial you know build up to clinical trial—it's really exciting. Mm. And are you seeing any move amongst the investor community to provide kind of a shared infrastructure to their portfolio companies? So I've seen—I think Deerfield has some labs that it has in Manhattan that it's trying to provide. You know, that kind of physical infrastructure uh, or the technical infrastructure. You know, the kind of automation systems or other things that you know there seems to be economies of scale to be had there, assuming that the, that infrastructure is appropriate for, you know, more than one portfolio company. Exactly. And it's not betraying any confidentiality to say that, you know, we had those conversations a lot at Apple Tree and, um, you know, looked at where we could do that. And there is such a thing as ATP labs. It's not doing the cell and gene stuff, actually it's doing mostly small molecule stuff, but we did consider the cell and gene angle too. Um, I, I think that, Certainly, I, I can reflect some of the things that we discussed at ATP, and that was that we wanted to ensure that each portfolio company was empowered to make its own decisions, and that was a, that was a very strong perspective, and I, I agree with that. We didn't want to kind of have them um, sort of forced, if you like, to to fit a certain model just because it, it fitted the sort of portfolio. It was it was. Like, we're going to set these companies up, their own management teams, and empower them to, to do what they want to do. And so that 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 kind of overrode the, the that idea of standardization, if you like, and saying yeah, every company is going to use these central facilities with these things. Um, but I do see, you know, that that there are there are arguments to be had about certain central processes and capabilities that uh, investors should think about. So I think that 
done intelligently and flexibly, I think it can work um, if you've got a large enough portfolio in that in those particular fields. Yeah. Yeah, I think we call it infrastructure as a service, like this idea of being able yeah. to have shared resources. We know four or five years ago, you know, pre-21, we would have seen lots of people investing in their own facilities and their own footprints and their own infrastructure. And that and that hasn't gone so well for, for most companies. Yeah, I mean, at Autolist, we, we, um, we had to. There was no real other option at that time. There were no CDMOs. And we talked about you talked about the model of big pharma buying. You used to say, well, what are they going to do if they buy us? They're not going to, they don't have their own facility. They're going to yeah. have to use something that we're building. So that was very much the intention to be in control of our own manufacturing and supply chain. But that's not to say it wasn't easy. You know, we, we, we jumped into catapult as a, as a kind of uh, halfway house, if you like. Um, and we had various, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's public record that there was, you know, a site in the U S that was, kind of started and, and then sold on, you know, and, and they sort of rethought that strategy and, and relocated close to Catapult, which was actually not by chance because that's where the, we built the team, you know, and that was the fundamentals of it. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch the evolution of that thinking and and the constraints are not only financial, obviously the, the 50 or $100 million it takes to put a facility in the ground, um, but you have to be where the talent is. And then mm-hmm. usually if you go where their talent is, there's other companies there competing for that talent. So yeah, <laughs> you know, how yeah. do you, how do you solve for that? And you need to be able to be more efficient in both the size, the footprint, the amount of mm-hmm. investment required, and also the people and just do yeah. more with, with automation, which hopefully we, you know, we mm-hmm. can help with at some point. Um, speaking of kind of, advancements and innovations um you know our goal at ori is really to close and automate the process in order to increase throughput increase quality and dramatically decrease costs in order to get you know to enable widespread patient access and part of that for us is digital is the kind of introducing digital first approach um i've seen too many large binders you know a thousand pages of paper batch record at the end of a of a process um and you mentioned the catapult. Stephen Ward from the catapult has this terrible graph of the amount of QP resource that's required to release products yeah. that goes yeah. logarithmic or exponential um, if you start to get into the tens of thousands of doses. So yeah. uh, I'm curious what role you think that, te- te- that technology should play in helping yeah. the industry unlock the next phase. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'd put my hand up and say the enabling technology sector, so the kind of supportive technologies supporting biotech in the, in the cell and gene therapy space. We just haven't done our job very well. Mm-hmm. We provided technologies that were often too inflexible that really didn't meet the need of the industry. And we just haven't kept up with the pace of innovation. You know, there's something like 2,500 clinical trials in cell and gene right now going on. You know, there's lots of different, you know, eight or 10 or 12 different cell types that are being explored, but we're still using technology that was, that's 20 years old. Uh, and that's maybe started out in stem cell, uh, in the stem cell field. Yeah. So what, fault, what what role do you think technology should play in the next chapter uh, of cell yeah, and gene? I think you um, you mentioned data there, and I think that if there's one thing that defines our our industrial age right now, it's data. Yeah, and data is everything. You look at the biggest companies in the world; they're all data companies now. And um, so, uh, and, and and cell and gene's no different, and it needs to really push on that. So I think that or is very sensibly seeing that as a as a way to differentiate and to and to improve because data is everything and and the more that you can learn about the complexity of both the patient and your product the better that you're going to get and the more efficient you're going to get and therefore the cheaper you're going to get and 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 so on and so on and you're quite right to 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 look at some of the operational um aspects of of how you how you manufacture products so we had this vision uh, of, of what we wanted. Now, some of which we tr- we, we introduced things like yeah, uh, digital um, batch records. Yeah, that's that's a reality now, and that can be done. But I wanted to go further than that because you're quite right. The review period and the way in which traditional batch record review is done for each product is not sustainable at all. And I said, look, let's imagine a scenario where. You need to, at the moment, the review needs to know that the operator is trained and that the equipment is calibrated and that the products have all met spec, the raw materials have all met spec, all the et cetera, et cetera, 
uh, and that's all part of the review. There's a, a billion different things to review that to ensure that that product is 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 ready to be released for clinical use or, or commercial use. I said, why don't we have a system that stops any operator, even if you it walks up to a machine, there should be some automated or you know, a kind of force field or <laughs> something a little bit. Uh, a more normal, like an uh, like a RFI or something, that automatically checks that trainer status, that automatically checks that machine status, that automatically ensures that all the materials being put on are, are, are tagged such a way that the operator cannot push the go button. It just won't work until everything is right, and therefore you don't get because what holds you up in in review are the, th- the, the, you know, the exceptions, the things that have, have, have gone out of the deviations, things that have gone out of plan. If you can stop those happening by your automated um, approach, then you know that the review is going to be quick because it's already happened. You see what I mean? It's happened in advance before rather than after. Rather than it being a review, it's proactive. So this idea of proactive quality control is something i believe can be built into a into a, a system and a process and an equipment as well yes and that that would be and maybe in another phraseology like the, the approach for continuous validation and ultimately leading to release by exception so they, that ability to manage just the deviations exactly yeah just if you get rid of those those that that possibility of making the mistake yeah. Uh, then, uh, then you can just release the product at the end. Yeah, yeah. And is there any, as you scan, do do your in your travels, as you horizon scan, are there particular technologies that you are uh, getting excited about for 2024 and beyond? I know there's been a bunch of conversation recently with. It looks like the FDA doing their prudent job of of risk assessment, looking at some secondary tumors for a very small percentage of yeah. CAR T patients yeah. that were. You know, potentially tied to, to viral vector, you know, I know transfection or electroporation or other types of genetic yeah. modification technology has, has been getting a lot of airtime, not only in the last few weeks, but in the last few years. Are there anything along those lines or anything else you're looking at that, that particularly has you excited? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I think that that signal is is small enough that it it's not uh, going to be sort of uh relevant uh to 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 the current indications but of course as you start to move beyond those life-threatening acute indications into into sort of more chronic stuff then yeah that is going to become much more of a of a and the numbers go up you know but whether you know whether electroporation stone solve all that i don't know uh there may be other aspects that we haven't seen yet but certainly um improving safety is always um is is always a key focus. I think in terms of what excites me, the stuff that I I I really enjoy looking. At, I think um, other cell types. I'm a big fan of macrophages and myeloid therapies. I think they're going to be uh, they're going to be good. I think epigenetics. I'm seeing as a field epigenetic editing and so on. Uh, really exciting um, and the ability to to sort of influence cells in different ways. RNA editing transplicing those types of things there are just so many cool technologies out there that i think are going to be transformational yeah absolutely one of our partners is in scepter bio and they've got a car macrophage or a car monocyte program that they've elevated which looks super interesting for solid tumors so definitely a lot of interesting work happening on that on that front um i'm going to ask you to dust off your crystal ball if you don't mind you can just pull it out from under your desk there um (laughs) And, you know, if you can vision in the five to 10 years uh, time frame from here, you know, what does good look like for this industry? You know, where do you predict we'll be? Mm. You know, I think Scott Gottlieb famously predicted we'd be approving, you know, 15 to 20, I think it was, or 20 to 25 cell therapies every year by 2025. We're, we're well short of that. But I wonder what your, uh, what your crystal ball is telling you about the industry and, and its direction of travel. Almost reeling back to the beginning of our conversation, it's, it's not just about the numbers of, of approvals, it's about the type of indications that I think are really going to be uh, the change. And I, this idea that we need to 
C-cell and gene therapy move out of its niche of rare diseases into uh, more common diseases. And by that, I think at the moment, obviously, the low hanging fruit, if I can use that cliche, is is around genetically defined disease. I think you need to start thinking about. Yeah, we've seen CAR T go into hematologic malignancies, and that's been terrific. But I, I think the next leap is going to be into these non-genetically defined multifactorial diseases. So things like, can I see a world where we could treat Alzheimer's with a brain penetrating sort of macrophage that gobbles up amyloid? I do see that. I think that's possible. I can't, I can't technically, I'm not smart enough to work out how to do that. But do I think that that's the type of product that could be developed, that could suddenly be a huge blockbuster requiring a completely different thinking about how we supply and, 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 and treat patients? Yeah, I do. I do think that's possible. So this idea of, of you know, going after dysregulated pathways, whether it be autoimmune, whether it be fibrosis, you know, chronic kidney disease. My gosh, you know, you could imagine you know, something that's going to go and eat up the dead tissue and, and repair at the same time. It's possible. Mm. Again, I don't know how, but it's the type of thing. <laughs> you'd be, you'd be off starting your own company again if, yeah. you, if you knew how to answer that question. But uh, yeah. mm. no, I agree. I mean, I think it's a super, you know, I really hope that, you know, what, what I don't think we can afford is a series of additional commercial failures as an industry. We need to learn our lessons and implement them so that the next wave of, of products are more, more easily accessible. You know, maybe they're lower cost, maybe they're easier to make, maybe we can produce them in higher volumes. You know, we've talked to, you know, um, our friends at J&J have stated openly they have the ambition to to produce 10,000 doses a year of, of Carvicti. And that's a, a step change from where they are certainly now. That would be more than any, than the whole industry produced in all of, all of this year. You know, we're on target to trade about 9,000 patients this year in total across all, all the products. So I think the investment and the expertise of, you know, rethinking manufacturing, rethinking the supply chain, rethinking how we, rethinking how we deliver and manufacture these products is happening. It's happening amongst a lot of the leaders that are in this space. And I think that I, one thing I also I can see uh, beyond sort of the innovation, I think the regulators are going to change. I think that at the moment, you, I mean, I've, I've been involved in license submissions and INDs and so on, many of them. And yeah, there's sections around uh, safety, obviously, and there's sections around your efficacy and, and, and um, then there's sections around your CMC. And your CMC really is, is around how it supports that safety and efficacy argument. I can see a world where the regulators put in another section into that CMC section, which is around cost of goods, and start to say, I, we want a standardized, transparent description of your cost of goods and how your cost of goods are going to reduce over time. You know, by, you know, I can see that being part of your approval passes because of what we talked about of like, there's no point them approving stuff that is unaffordable. And they know that we know that. And so I can see that being embedded somehow within the regulatory submission that a commitment and a plan to drive that cost down will be part of the license and it will be part. And if you don't do that, then your license is withdrawn. And I think that will push uh, the industry even harder to address some of those challenges that we've talked about. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I mean, we, we know that there's no nice equivalent uh, in the U.S., you know, this kind of health economic assessment body. Um, but, you know, Peter Marks, the head of CBER, said, exactly. you know, it a month ago. Part of the actual, the actual BLA. The regular, yeah. No, and, and Peter Marks said, you know, really to increase accessibility uh, for car today's CAR-T therapies, they have to be dramatically cheaper. That was his, you know, quote, dramatically cheaper. Um, and it's just, a re it's just a realistic point of view. We just know that to be the case. Um, and, you know, my position is when we have this discussion around price, which is always a hard discussion to have, and say that's, you know, that's really not Ori's role. Ori's role is to make these products as cost effectively as possible 
and as high a volume as possible, and then let the market take control of, you know, there's other people more, much more qualified than I that make, to make these decisions on pricing. But ultimately, if we enable more products to hit the market more quickly at higher volumes that are, you know, higher quality, then the competition will take care of pricing and, and, and increase accessibility. And we have to make sure that we're doing that, you know, otherwise we've get, you know, products that are uh, approvable from a regulatory perspective, but aren't accessible or affordable, which doesn't help anyone. Well, Jim, thanks so much. I'll, uh, it's been a fantastic uh, 45 minutes or so we've, we've been able to chat. And I, there's, I don't just leave you with one question maybe to, I'm not sure, uh, I always joke, I'm not sure if we have any kind of university students or, or secondary students listening to the podcast. Probably not. Uh, but I'd be curious what uh, advice you'd give people that are, or, or companies working in the industry, interested in getting into the industry uh, about cell and gene in general. Um, you know, what words of wisdom would you leave them with as we, as we end the podcast? Yeah, I can only go on my own experiences. And, I, 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 and I, what standouts for me is like, be prepared for change. You know, they're, 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 it's an environment where you need to continuously adapt. You need to continuously adapt your thinking continuously adapt the way that you're going to approach problems but it's an opportunity it's an opportunity for continuous learning uh, and i really enjoy that you know i'm i'm sort of at the later stages of i guess of my career now um but i i feel you know i'm still learning stuff and i really relish that and i almost say to people if you're not learning then don't you know do something else because that's that's what you want to do you want to continue you know that growth uh, is something that that motivates me, and I think it, it motivates most people. But yeah, what would I say? Yeah, take it all in, enjoy the ride. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 good fun. It's a great industry to work in. It, it feels meaningful. It mm. feels scientifically challenging. Uh, it can be very rewarding. Yeah, no, keep your growth mindset. Uh, and uh, Carol Dweck, as you know, wrote a great book about that. And uh, I joined the cell and gene therapy industry only five years ago or so uh, after a lifetime, it feels like in small molecules. So every day is a school day for me, uh, learning, from, <laughs> learning from people like yourself and, and Farlan and Chris, the founders of Ori and, and others. Uh, but just wanted to reiterate our appreciation for you joining us today and for becoming a member of the, the Ori strategic advisory board and also um, the broader Ori team. Thank you very much. And great to see you. Hope to see you in three dimensions sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Jason. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. To keep up with the latest in cell and gene therapy and follow us on our mission to manufacture brighter futures for patients, head to the show notes to follow us on social media or visit us at oribiotech.com.